0: If you have your Bible, open it up to Psalm 42. So we were going back and forth about what to uh, what Old Testament book to jump to after finishing up our study in Thessalonians. <clears throat> and uh, with all of the loss uh, that we've recently experienced here at Church on the Way, um, you know, some pastors have asked me how things are going. I said, well, we, you know, we lost three members in three months, and for the first 17 years, we lost two. So it's, it's a bit of a transition, a bit of a, a change for, for us. And so um, I just remember how going through the Psalms was so comfor- comforting to me with everything going on in the world at the time when we went through that. And so we're going to go back through the second book of Psalms. I don't know if you remember, but Psalms is actually five books. Um, this is kind of a shorter book that we're going to go through. Um, and and this morning, the introductory message will be out of Psalm 42 and 43, uh, much like the first book of Psalms where Psalms, uh, one and two are a unit, uh, Psalms 42 and 43 are also a unit and I'll explain why that is in, in just a minute. Um, before I jump into that, um, I want to tell you a quick little story in, uh, October 19th, 1856, Charles Spurgeon was preparing to preach to the largest crowd that he had preached to up until this point. A little over 10,000 people had gathered together in the Surrey Gardens Music Hall. It was the largest indoor venue that Spurgeon, that, that they could find in England. To be able to have him preach the message. People were, were wanting to hear the gospel so much, they were constantly having to find a larger and larger space. And this was the largest space they could find. And, and when Spurgeon started preaching, there were some hooligans in the back that yelled out, fire. And that the supports were starting to give way. Now this was a multi-story structure to be able to hold all these people. And this created, as you can imagine, a panic of all of these people trying to get out of the building. Now, 10,000 people, it's a lot of people. Spurgeon's in the middle of, he's just started preaching, and he doesn't know what's going on. So he just keeps preaching. So many times you guys have seen me do things like that. Things start happening in the, in the church and we just, I just keep on preaching, right? Well, that's what he does. Until someone comes on stage and explains to him what's happening. And at that point, they don't know whether there is a fire or there's not a fire. So he begins to tell people, those of you nearest to the exit, start to calmly make your way out and get out of the building. But before he was able to do that, seven people were trampled to death in the back because of the panic that had ensued. And when they told Spurgeon this, he passed out. The press blamed him for the deaths. His friends tried to shield him from the worst of the news because he was almost completely crushed in spirit, one writer said. And he experienced a, a deep spiritual depression. The The horror and the trauma of the events left Spurgeon questioning, feeling isolated, and God, he said, seemed so distant. Spurgeon, who had been a preacher at the, at the peak of his popularity at this point was sent plummeting into what he would call the dark night of the soul. A place so dark he struggled to see any light. Have you ever found yourself there? In those moments, no amount of right thinking or even right theology can help you climb out. Our only hope in those moments is to cling to God and wait until the light returns. I love that quote that says, remember, the darkest hour is just before dawn. This is what the first two Psalms are about. Psalms one and two are a pair that opens this second book um, of the Psalms. And we we see in in 42 and 43, there's this this pair. We see that with some repetition that is carried over from Psalm 42 to Psalm 43, showing that this was really one unit to be read together. And now we don't know who the author of this psalm is. The only clue we have is the sons of Korah, but that doesn't narrow it down to which son. Um, We don't know who exactly he was. But we can learn some things about him in this passage. Look at verse 6, for instance. Notice that it says that he is in the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mizar. But this is not where he wants to be. He wants to be in Jerusalem. So he's, he's far away from where he wants to be physically. He's also far away from access to God in the temple. One might say that he has found himself exiled in another land. That's not his homeland. And notice at the end of verse three, someone is is taunting him saying, where is your God? We see that again at the end of verse 10. And so we know that he is not where he wants to be. And he's surrounded by this enemy that is taunting him and teasing him, he's being mocked, and they're asking him, "Where's your God? You, 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 you seem abandoned. You seem lost." And then look at verse nine, where at the end of that verse he refers to the oppression of the enemies, and he says he's he's being oppressed by these enemies. And in verse 5, ESV renders it, that why are you cast down, O my soul? And we see that again in verse 6. My soul is cast down. Again in verse 11. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And then at the end of Psalm uh, 43, 5. Why are you cast down? And some, some translators or some translators. Uh, translate this being cast down as being depressed. But why are you depressed, oh my soul? So this guy is, is exiled, he's alone, he's being taunted, he's oppressed by his enemy, he's, he's depressed spiritually, right? This is, this is a lot like the way Spurgeon was, right? The, the, the press is taunting him and, and accusing him. And he is is struggling with this deep spiritual depression. And and I would encourage you, if that's something that you struggle with, read Spurgeon. (laughs) He he doesn't hide it. He doesn't cover it up. He talks about it honestly, the the battles with the dark nights of the soul that he had. But this author in this psalm is clearly a man who is suffering. That is is the context of. In which he is writing. With all that in mind, let's go back and look at verse one. It says something interesting here in verse one of Psalm 42. As a deer pants for flowing stream, so pants my soul for you, O God. There, there is a, there is a thirst that he has for God. He, he is thirsty to be back in God's presence. Now, I want to be clear because the meaning of words change, and this is not the same way the kids use thirsty today. But, but what he's saying here is, is important and it's instructive for us. It's important to notice that this man is, is, is going through all of these circumstances that I've laid out, right? Right? And this is the first thing he wants, is God. He's thirsting after his God. He's not concluding that these enemies that keep asking, where's your God, where's your God, where's your God, right? He's not going, okay, well, I don't know where he's at. Maybe you're right. Maybe he has abandoned me. Maybe he has left me. He's not joining in with these idolatrous people, right? He's, he's not trying to cry out to some foreign God to, to see if he can help him because my God's not listening, so maybe I should call out to another God. No, he hasn't given up on God. And lastly, he's not giving up on God and, and turning to some kind of sin to find comfort for his soul. This is a temptation for all of us, right? When we find ourselves in a place where we don't feel God's presence, it becomes easier for us to fall into sinful behavior to try to comfort our souls, to try to make the pain go away a little bit, to take our minds off of it for a little while, right? I'm just going to binge a few series on Netflix. I'm just going to have a few drinks whatever that looks like for you whatever that temptation for you is it's it's easiest when we don't feel God's presence to slip into those patterns but that's not what he is doing he says as a deer pants for flowing streams so pants my soul for you oh god the the word that's being used here for pants is is one that describes an animal panting during a drought this isn't just an animal that is Wanting some water. This is an animal that is going without water for long periods of time. Like in the, in the context of a drought. And, and they are thirsty. They, they, are, they are panting. They're desperately needing water. Maybe some of you who have grown up on farms. You've seen animals and, and, and they haven't had water in a while. And just the way that they're just violently panting. Needing that water to save them. He's exiled, he's alone, he's mocked, he's depressed. And he recognizes that he needs God. That's what he needs in that moment. I'm panting for you, Lord. Now, is that your first thought? When when you find yourself in these kinds of circumstances, The fact that this is the first thing he says in these kinds of circumstances, I think is very instructive for us this morning. It's showing us what we need to do when we find ourselves in these places. It, It helps us to understand how we should respond when we find ourselves in these places in our lives. And if you haven't been in these places, if you live long enough, I promise you, you will be at some point in the future. The psalmist wants us to see that the most important thing we need is God. When we find ourselves depressed, isolated, mocked, he is what we need the most. The author of this psalm is someone that has experienced the joy of communing with God in the temple. He knows of God's goodness firsthand but it's not just a, a personal experience with God that he's missing. So many times that's what we're desiring. He is missing the corporate experience of worship. Worshiping with God's people together. This is not the cry of a man asking for some kind of mystical or unique revelation of God. He wants what what he wants is what every one of you got this morning. He wants to be with God's people, singing the praises of his God. That's what he's longing for. That's what he's panting for. That's what he's thirsty for. He desperately wants to have what so many of us take for granted every week. He repeats himself in the next verse. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Again, he reminds the reader or the singer of the psalm that what we need to satisfy our souls is God. God is the only thing that can truly satisfy our souls. Everything in this world is like Chinese food, right? I love Chinese food. And we've all had this experience, I think, where where you go out and you eat Chinese food and you get full and maybe you take home the rest, depending on how generous they are with their rice, right? And, And you get home and you're like, man, I'm hungry. And those leftovers don't even make it to the next day, right? Like, you're you're, you're starving. and And that's what everything in the world, everything else in the world is like. Nothing truly satisfies our souls like God. And what the psalmist is recognizing here is that the food that isn't filling will not satisfy him. The author of the psalm wants to be satisfied. He wants to be filled, but he refuses to be filled with anything other than God. One theologian points out that this dynamic that we see at work in this psalm works at the level of what we love and what we find pleasure in. God created us to be pleased by things that he means for us to enjoy and he has instructed us to enjoy them. But if we try to enjoy one of God's blessings, but refuse to follow God's instructions, what's going to happen is that that blessing, that thing that God meant for good, is going to rise up and stand over you and become a slave master. God has given us so many good things to enjoy in this world. Eat, drink, and be merry, the Bible says, right? But when we start elevating those things, thinking those things are going to satisfy my soul, then they become a horrible taskmaster that enslaves us. The things that we were meant to enjoy will instead enslave us. And the author wants God, because he knows that only God can satisfy his yearnings. Notice that what he says there in verse 2. When shall I come and appear before God? The psalmist wants to be reunited with his people and once again worship before the Lord the way he was commanded to in the Old Testament. He's simply asking to be able to do what was commanded of him by Moses. But he can't. Look at verse 3. My tears have been my food day and night. He wants God to fill him. But instead, all he must fill himself with are his tears. And while all the while his enemies are taunting him, asking, where is this God you want so much? Where is he at? And the only thing that he can do in response is to fill his belly with tears. I want you to notice the the depth of emotion that the psalmist is expressing here he's crying day and night and i would contend that this is a model for suffering well here remember he's he's not giving up on god he's not turning to some kind of idolatry or sin to fill the void this this kind of steadfastness under trials is why we honor and respect people like corrie ten boom a, a dutch christian her, her and her family hid the jews during the holocaust and they were eventually captured themselves and sent to concentration camps. Despite the horrific conditions, she held on to her faith and continued to trust in God's plan and stay faithful, even in a concentration camp. Now, it would have been easy for the, this Dutch family to just be like, you know what? Don't come into my house. They would have never stepped foot in a concentration camp. Life would have just been just fine for them. But they chose to do what was right and they accepted the suffering that came along with that. And they endured. Another important thing we can learn from the psalm is that while he suffered well, God didn't change his emotions. His emotions, the way he felt, didn't change. And the same is often true for us. The Lord may not change our circumstances. Now, I want you to notice he's, what he's doing while longing and weeping for God. In verse 4, it says, These things I remember as I pour out my soul. The psalmist is pouring out his soul in prayer. He's, he's panting for the Lord. He's thirsting for God. The way he pours out his soul here is in prayer. And notice what else he says in verse four. I remember how I would go with the throne and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. The keeping festival means he used to do what Israel would do on the feast days. He would join the crowd, perhaps maybe even as a leader of the crowd, as one of the sons of Korah. These were the men that David put in charge of the service of song at the house of God after the ark rested there. We find him here thinking back and remembering on the way things were. When everything was right. And for our author, this is a a cherished memory in his life that he is rehearsing and reminding himself of. Being with God's people, not with these enemies right worshiping together with god's people not all by himself in jerusalem not exiled far from home he's in a place where all he has left is his memories and again we may find ourselves in those places sometimes we, we want to come and we want together, but for a physical reason, we're not able to get up and go to church and worship with God's people. And all we can do is lay in that bed and just remember what it's like. I remember how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. He says, for those of you who are members of church on the way, my prayer is that you would feel the same way about your church family. That, that when you're not here, that it's, that it's it's our prayer that you'll miss it. And, and listen, miss it not out of a feeling of guilt. Right? Not like, where were you? Why weren't you here? No. You will miss it out of a feeling of love. The way we see here, he, there's a longing here, a loving. I want to be with God's people. I want to be with my small group. I, I, I don't like it when I miss it. Not because they make me feel guilty, not because they make me feel ashamed, but because I love the people that God has placed in my life to worship with. And this is exactly what the psalmist is feeling. Memories of this time when, when, you're, when he was with the people that he loved, he's praising God. And reflecting on this brings us to verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Now, I hope you can hear the good theology in this question, right? He, 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 he knows what's right. You can hear him saying to himself, you know, that God's in control. You know, that God is sovereign. In other words, he knows that God is going to make this situation right one way or the other. Ultimately, he will be back with God's people worshiping again one day. That That's something that every one of us can be guaranteed of. And he knows the way he feels in his soul doesn't correspond with the theology that he knows is true. Why are you cast down, oh my soul? This is not the way he should feel. Look at the rest of the next statement. Why are you in turmoil within me? Maybe you feel this way when you're trying to resist. Sin or temptation. Maybe you feel this, this turmoil. When you're wrestling through whether or not you're going to submit your life. And be obedient to God. And, and you feel this, this tension. This, this turmoil. Maybe you feel this way when you know the right thing. That you're being called to do. And you're not so excited about doing it. And there's this just this, this angst. He, he's cast down. He's in turmoil and then he admonishes himself hoping god for i shall hoping god for i shall again praise him notice what he's doing here he is confessing his faith he's rehearsing it if you will to himself hope in god for i shall again praise him my salvation One way or another, he will once again join God's people in praise and worship. And so he is admonishing himself because he believes that God is going to keep his promises judge the wicked, save the righteous, and fill the world with his blessing. He believes this. He he believes that's what God is going to do, that God is going to act. However, in verses 6 through 11, we see that this doesn't take the pain away. He seems to have worked himself up to a great resolution here in verse 5, right? But then we go into the refrain of this psalm. And we're going to see this refrain again in verse 11. And again in chapter 43, verse 5. This is, again, one of the main reasons I think these two psalms are one unit. But look at verse 6. My soul is cast down within me. One theologian renders this, that his soul is sunken and it still hasn't risen. His soul is sunk down in his body. Have you ever experienced this feeling? You know the right things. You know the right answers. And yet, your soul is still struggling to catch up with what you know. It doesn't alter or change the way you feel. I don't know about you, but I find this so encouraging that someone inspired by the Holy Spirit is articulating this feeling. He had to work through it just like we all have to work through it. And notice what we can learn from this. Having the right answer and knowing theological truth, as we can see from our text that our author does, he knows those things. These things are never a guarantee to change our physical or our emotional circumstances. Knowing the, the right theological answer is important. But it's no guarantee that it's going to change the way you feel. And it's no guarantee that it's going to change your circumstances. Knowing the right theology isn't going to teleport him back to Jerusalem. Knowing the right answer doesn't make him feel better in his soul. Sometimes it will. And we should praise God. But it's no guarantee. And so if it. If it doesn't for you, I would encourage you, remember Psalms 42 and 43. And remember the example of this psalmist. We we find ourselves in these kind of situations, it's important to keep praying. He's praying along and he seems to come to a resolution in verse 5, but then he he gets through that and in verse 6 he recognizes his soul is still cast down inside of him, right? He's right back where he started. And so he does the only thing that he can do. He keeps on praying. Look at what he says at the end of verse 6. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you. When we find ourselves in this place, we have to remember God. There's really nothing else we can do. When the darkness doesn't lift, the circumstances don't change. He's still not in Jerusalem. He's instead in the land of Jordan in the north. He's up near, near Hermon and near uh, north of the Sea of Galilee in the land of Israel. The Dead Sea is much lower. If you're looking at a map, that's closer to where Jerusalem is at, which is to the south. This, this river that he's looking at it 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 it, it's, it comes out of the slopes of Mount Hermon and it flows southward through northern Israel to the Sea of Galilee. Exiting the sea, it, it continues south, dividing Israel from Jordan, and then emptying finally into the Dead Sea. And, and from this vantage point of being in this mountainous place, he sees the waters of the river Jordan. And it would appear that as he watches the Jordan River moving through these slopes of this mountain, allowing him to reflect on God's creation. Look at verse 7. Deep calls to deep. and The roar. Of your waterfalls. Perhaps the depths of the water are calling out and resonating with the depths of his own soul. As he sees the water crashing against the rocks. And the the resistance that's happening through those mountainous trails. That 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 is the way he feels inside of him. This is not a calm smooth river. Right? This is violent inside of me. There's this fighting going on. And he sees a correlation between the water hitting the rocks and the way his soul is churning inside of himself. This then leads him to reflect on God's power in creation. Notice again, despite his suffering, he is looking for God, right? That's where he's looking. That's, That's where he's constantly turning his face toward. And we all face temptation when our circumstances and our emotions don't change. And we've been praying, we've been reading our Bible, making sure our theology is correct, and we've sought after God, and nothing changes. And we can be tempted to think, well, none of this works. None of this works. Why are you doing any of this? And then we start to think that we need some more practical answers to fix our problems. I need to do something besides just persevering in loving God and loving others. Maybe we need to stop serving for a while. Maybe that's, maybe that's the answer. Maybe i just burn out. That'll help. Right? Maybe, maybe I need to spend less time around certain people. Maybe that'll help. And the danger with trying to find a quick fix, practical solution on our own is that we can short-circuit the process of sanctification in our lives. God may mean to bless you through those dark nights of the soul. Even if those long nights continue for years. And if we short circuit the process. We could short circuit the opportunity to meet the Lord in our pain. Verse eight, he is able to lift up his head and say, by day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. Commanding steadfast love. What, what does that mean? What the psalmist may be saying is that, you know, that each new day itself testifies to God's steadfast love. God's trustworthiness can be seen with each sunrise. The night is darkest right before sunrise, and day by day the Lord commands His steadfast love. And this idea seems to result in a a night. His song is with him. He is singing praise to God in the midst of all the pain and all the sorrow. His circumstances haven't changed, but he knows that God is a God of steadfast love. And he cries out in verse 9, I say to my God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Now, given all that I just said, does this question surprise you? I think the psalmist knows Right? That God hasn't forgotten him. But it feels like it. It feels like he has. So he says to the Lord, have you forgotten me? He's expressing to God exactly how he's feeling. And I want you to notice a couple things here. First, notice the psalm doesn't end here. (laughs) And what I mean by that is God doesn't strike him down in the middle of writing this song. Right? Second, I would encourage you that... That if this is the way you feel, pray the same way. Don't try to sugarcoat it. Don't try to have the right answer, the right religious facade. Go to God and say, God, I don't feel it. I don't feel you. I feel as though I've been forgotten. Tell Him. And keep praying it that way until He comes to you. And then. The psalmist turns back to his circumstances at the end of verse 9. Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Again, I would encourage you, if you feel like you're, these are your circumstances, talk to God about them. Now, if you believe your Bible, you know that some things aren't going to change until Christ returns and makes all things new. There's going to be sickness and disease until that, come, until that day comes. But that doesn't mean it's wrong to ask the question. That the psalmist isn't just accepting the way things are. He's persevering. He wants things to be put right. And he's crying out to the one who who can do it. And then the enemies repeat their question in verse 10. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? In, verse, in the first part of verse 10. And I think what he's saying here at the end, as with a bodily wound in my bones, my adversaries taught me that the repetition of their questioning is like breaking each one of his 206 bones in his body. And it's killing him. Bone by bone by bone. And then back to the refrain of verse 11. Why are you cast down O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? He knows that he shouldn't feel this way. Again, he is reminding himself. He he's still having to do this. He's still having to say hope in God. He's still down, but he's believing the right things. And now, as he turns from ver- or Psalm 42 to 43, He starts making requests. And we see the first request in verse 1 of Psalm 43. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. Vindicate me. What what, what does that mean? Well, he spells it out. Defend my case against ungodly people. From deceitful and unjust men, deliver me. This is what he wants. He's, he's being very specific with God as he lays out this request. He wants God to deliver him from these enemies and bring him back to the city of God so that he once again can do what he has been looking to do from the beginning of this psalm. And then again in verse 2, why have you rejected me? Have you ever been here in this place and have someone tell you that, that God hasn't rejected you? Now, I think there's an appropriate time and a place to tell somebody that, hey, listen, I know you're feeling that God is rejecting you, but he hasn't. I think that's appropriate sometimes. But I just want you to understand, for those of you who might say that, that is not going to change the way the person feels. So, love is patient. Love is kind. Be patient and be kind. Because just because you are speaking truth doesn't mean the other person is going to receive it and instantly change. It doesn't change the way this guy feels as he's writing. Now, here's the second request in verse three. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Now, I think this is another connection back to the day in the previous psalm. By the day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. The psalmist didn't live long enough to see it but god sent someone saying i am the light of the world send out your light and your truth and jesus said i am the way the truth and the life and we're going to see over the next few sermons the, the messianic hope the theme of this opening book of psalms too because not only were these psalms inspired by the writer but they were inspired by the person who put this collection together and and there there is a narrative story happening throughout these first about eight or ten psalms in book two that starts with exile and ends in the new city with a new king so i'm not importing jesus in here i think jesus was always the place that this was pointing to Verse 3, let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. The holy hill, that's where God established the Messiah back in Psalm 2, verse 6. As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Again, a reference to Jesus. So he's thinking in terms of hope for a future king from David's line, and he wants to be brought back to God's dwelling place. Verse 4, then I will go to the altar of God. To God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the liar, O God, my God. Now for some, this, this again, may be hard to hear, but what becomes obvious here is that the reason that this man is so depressed, the reason that he is so down, is because he can't go and worship. That's why he's so depressed. He cannot worship with God's people. Is that what makes you down? Is that what makes you depressed of soul? Is that you can't gather with the people of God to worship? Or is it because you've lost something else? There was such a a sweet little mini revival that happened after COVID. In some ways, I see it as God's grace upon us that that we were kind of forced to do things differently for a while because it helped people to realize how much they missed the gathering of God's people but a couple years into it and we've already forgotten again it's easy for us to do but for this man this is this is what is depressing his soul is that he cannot come together and worship with God's people He desperately wants to go to Jerusalem, to go up to the temple, to sacrifice at the altar, to worship his God. Whom he calls my exceeding joy. This morning, we want you to experience God. We we want you to experience this exceeding joy. And if this is not the way you feel, I would just encourage you to cry out to the Lord the same way we see the psalmist. Cry out to the Lord God, to make yourself my exceeding joy, and then even if removed from the people of God and removed from my church, and, I, and, and you can't gather with your people to worship, that you're still going to cry out to Him. Our main concern should be to know God, to walk with Him, and to praise Him. If you're not a believer here this morning, I We want you to know Him. Those of us who who know God, this is the way we feel about Him. There's nothing more important to us than God. There's nothing more satisfying to us than God. And we want to be like the psalmist where if everything is taken from us, as long as we have the Lord, it's okay. And we want that for you. We want you to know God as your exceeding joy. We we would love nothing more than to help you turn from all that stuff that's killing you and enslaving you and be reconciled to God by trusting in Christ. And I would I would urge you, I would encourage you this morning to do that. The triumph that this psalmist is, is yearning for is still in the future. When we get to the end of Psalm 43, where, why are you cast down, O oh my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise and my salvation, my God. He's still looking for it at this point in history. He's, he's still downcast because he doesn't have it. And this psalmist is modeling how believers should respond when the dark night of the soul doesn't leave us. In closing, let me just review the steps the psalmist has taken here. And let me make this real simple for you. I want to give you 10 steps that he takes to respond well to suffering. And each one of these I have already mentioned. So I'm just going to go really quickly through this. Some of you I just know need practical things. What do I do? Step one, he thirsted for God alone as his source of satisfaction. And rejected everything else as a counterfeit. He thirsted for God alone as his source of satisfaction. And he rejected everything else as a counterfeit. You see that in Psalm 42, 1 through 2. Step two, he remembered his corporate worship experience. And he let that bring him joy. He desired corporate, not private, worship. That's Psalm 42 4. Step three, real simple. He remembered God. He remembered God. You see that in 42 6. Step four, he reflected on God's work in creation and his justice. You see that in Psalm 42 7. Step five, he reminds himself of God's steadfast love. And he's singing God's praises. At night, he reminds himself of God's steadfast love and he sings his praises at night. Step six, he wasn't afraid to ask God why. See that in Psalm 42, nine. Step seven. He cried out to God for vindication. He cried out to God for vindication. It's verse one of 43. 43. Step eight, he asked God to send out his light and truth to lead him home. Psalm 43, three. Step nine, he promised to worship God in accordance with the Bible's instruction. Psalm 43.4. In step ten, he urged himself to wait, to hope, and to trust that he would again have the joy of worship. Now, Jesus has set in in motion the salvation that this psalmist was looking for by his death and resurrection. But that salvation hasn't yet been fully consummated. It hasn't fully yet come to pass. And until then, we are going to experience things like the things that are described here in Psalm 42 and 43. So until then, we need to follow the example of of this psalmist. Remember what it says in verse or in Hebrews eleven thirteen These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. So just like the sons of Korah, this son of Korah is doing in Psalm 43, we need to persevere. Spurgeon persevered, and within a week or two, he said, God returned to him. It was like the light came on, he said. And he went on to be asked, just a few weeks after that, to preach to a group of 24,000 people. I'm sure that he was glad that he waited on the Lord instead of trying to figure it out himself. If this is where you're at this morning, cling to God and wait for him. Wait for the darkness to lift. Keep praying and don't stop until it does. Let's pray. Father, We thank you for your word. We thank you for inspiring the psalmist to write about his struggles, a struggle that we all face, Lord, in our lives, a struggle that some may be in the midst of right now. And Lord, we we pray that as they persevered and got up this morning and came to the service and they heard other people singing and worshiping you that that ministered to their soul in this moment where it's hard for them to sing and father for the rest of us god may we see our our worship service our time together of receiving the word and singing the word lord that that we would see that as not only worshiping you but as an as a act of service for our brothers and sisters in Christ who may be struggling in ways we are not at the moment. Father, as we come now to the table, this, this beautiful picture of, of the, the, the commonality of salvation where all of us are equal, Lord, at the foot of the cross. Lord, may we come and celebrate you. Celebrate you if we feel like it, but also celebrate you even if we don't feel like it this morning. Because you are worthy to be celebrated. And Lord, as we take this bread that represents your body and we dip it into the wine that represents your blood that was shed for us, Lord, that that we would remember the joy of our salvation this morning. and perhaps there are some things that we need to confess and and, and make right Lord God I, I pray that you would work those things out in our heart but Lord that wouldn't hinder us and keep us from coming to the table and worshiping you this morning. And father for those who don't know you this morning. I pray that this would be the morning that they would give their life to you, that they would trust you. Ask all these things in Jesus' name.